everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More, Better Conversations with Healthcare. Are we starting already? Yes, we are starting right now. (laughs) There was no, there was no like... Okay. Subtle intro there. As you can see, this is going to be utter chaos. (laughs) Usually it's me one-on-one with a patient or a doctor. Today, I am so excited to have many, many people in my at-home studio, literally in my bedroom. Um, We are talking about students today and how they learn to talk to patients or not. And my guests are some pretty, pretty smart people. We'll start at the bottom of the rung and work our way up. So joining us is my husband, Chris. Um, (laughs) Why did that not surprise (laughs) Our local pediatrician. Obviously, I am your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. Thank you for being here again. Uh, To my left is my daughter, Maisie Meyer, who is a second-year med student at Mount Sinai's ICANN School of Medicine in New York City. And then to my right, I have Josh. Josh is a MD, PhD candidate in his first year at Yale. I know, right? And then to his right is Jacob. Jacob is also a first year MD, PhD candidate, and he is at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine at Brown. Okay, I'm going to breathe and I'm going to let these guys just tell you a little tiny bit about their experiences so far. Let me start by saying that it's hard enough to be an MD candidate, but to be an MD PhD candidate (laughs) is next level. So they're literally going for two doctorates. So um, Josh, let's start with you. Tell me how long is this educational experience going to take start to finish, including college? Let's do that because that's really dramatic. (laughs) So best case scenario? Pre-residency would be 12 years. So four years of college, kind of two years of med school, leave that, go to your PhD for hopefully four years, um, five if you're unlucky, (laughs) then come back and do another two years of med school, then go off to residency. Oh my God. So 12 years. How old are you going to be when you're doctor, doctor? Uh, I will hopefully be 29 or 30, which is not that bad considering a lot of the people in my cohort are anywhere from like 24 to 30. And so, you know, they could be like in their 40s. Yeah. (laughs) Damn. Okay. Um, Jacob, same for you. Exactly. The only difference is, so I'll be done at 16. Oh. I started at age four. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Josh got it exactly right. Two years of the first two years of medical school. We do our PhD for three to four years. We return and then do residency. For mm. So, Chris, how long did it take us? Just straight normal four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. I, I do feel like such a schlep in this uh, powerful brain cohort here. Uh, Maisie, you are not getting a PhD, and Thank that's God. a that's a topic of contention because you know her dad really wanted her to do that because it makes med school free, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been nice. But Maisie, why did you choose not to go get your PhD? Um, I didn't really have anything that I wanted to study that much for that long. Um, I know these guys have a lot of interest in translational science and in basic science research and in not basic science research. And I hate research Uh, in my body. So I love that. So you you get that from me because I also hate research. Um, But somebody's got to do it. Right. So let's get back to (laughs) it. So it's going to be these guys, (laughs) people willing to sacrifice their entire youth so that we can learn things that we will not apply for decades and decades and decades. Oh, wow. I will be dead before the world. So but so you're not even really thinking about 
or dealing with patients yet? Or are you? Little concocted scenarios where every week we get to go play doctor uh. and be um, <laughs> sort of working under a supervisor. And the sole purpose of that is just to be able to interview patients and sort of become more comfortable with that and like learn how to build that rapport. So it's actually just kind of training to learn how to talk to patients. Yeah, it's training to train. Nah, <laughs> got it. Okay, but but you, Maisie, you're you're firmly in it. You are actually already dealing with patients on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, so we do a lot of the concocted scenarios as well with the standardized patients, which are actors that are trained to to give us clinical scenarios and give us history and give us a physical and um and we do those as like in- encounters and it's um really obvious how much they're not real patients. <laughs> um, so we did those my whole first year, we did them about once a week um, for the entire first year. And then twice in the first year, they actually take you to the wards and say, you do a whole history and physical on a patient mm-hmm. that's an inpatient. Um, and so we did it twice in our first year. And now in second year, we do it every single week. So mm-hmm. we go to the wards every week um, and really like not with a ton of supervision because at this point, we're expected to like know how to do a full physical exam and a full history. We go to the wards and they ask a bunch of patients on the floor if they're willing to have us come in and, and do like a practice history and physical on them. And all the patients are always lovely and they're like totally have them come in and they'll talk to us for like an hour and we'll stand there and do an, an encounter. So, wow. So those those concocted scenarios, I think that's a really important thing to talk about because one of the things that I will never forget about med school. So we didn't get patient interaction until our third year, really. And we had um, what were called graduate teaching assistants. Remember these? They were pa- mm. people, you know, who volunteered to be patients, kind of like Maisie was talking about. Except what I'm thinking about is when we were first learning how to do gynecologic exams. Oh, God. And we would go into these exam rooms and these women would literally be volunteering to get eight to 10 pelvic exams a day by eight to 10 different medical students. And, you know... Grossly inexperienced. Yeah, yes. And I remember uh, this is so important because it's hard enough to learn how to talk to patients. It's next level to learn how to touch patients. Mm -hmm. It's next stratosphere to learn how to do a pelvic exam on a woman. Mm -hmm. There is nothing more, you know, intimate and difficult. And to be a bumbling fool trying to do that takes a lot. So, but these patients, these women all volunteer, I guess, sort of like in the most selfless way, kind of like you guys, like somebody's got to do this research. Somebody's got to teach these kids, right? So- it sounds like you guys have two different perspectives. Josh and Jacob, you have these, you know, kind of uh, prescriptive ways to talk to patients, right? You're, this is how you do it. Maisie, you're kind of like thrown in and you know, go figure it out. So Jacob, give me an example of, you know, a history maybe that you had to do and how you were supposed to do it and what you thought of that. That's a great question. So at Brown, we have a, it's flagship clinical skills program is called doctoring. And the way it works is it's twice a week. On Tuesdays, you have a didactic with a physician mentor and a not physician mentor, someone like a therapist. And on Thursdays, we will go to what we call a community mentor site, mm. which is a doctor, usually a primary care provider, um, who agrees to have us tag along and practice the skills that we learned that week in the clinic. Um, I have for the past 
few months have worked in pediatric eating disorders, oh. which is not something that we've trained in. You know, we're trained in traditional like OPPQRST, like, you know, where what does, does that hurt? mean? Great question. <laughs> sort of things like, where does it hurt? Where does your pain move oh. you know, on a scale of one to 10? How mm. bad is it? And that doesn't work in a lot of the clinical scenarios they've asked us to do, because for my patients, that's not what we're really curious about. Um, so what's been great about that experience is I've learned how to do a very, you know, thorough history, something we commit to memory, and then you apply it in a different way. So I've had to learn two full, two totally different interviews, one for what we do in school and one for what we do on the clinic. What you um, actually do with patients. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And some of it overlaps, mm -hmm. right? So like we spent a lot of time on the review of systems, which is where you ask about different organ systems and other symptoms that patients might be experiencing. But, but a lot of it does not overlap. No, a lot of it doesn't, right? And so it's been really cool to learn from the tome of like the giant medical interview, mm -hmm. what different providers pick and choose for their specific patient needs. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that, yeah. That, a specific example might be, honestly, any of the patients that, that we talk to, we do long interviews. Not a lot of it is is from the traditional 30 minute inter interaction. Right. And so, Chris, I want to ask you about that, specifically about Jacob's experience in pediatric eating disorders, because obviously what Jacob is getting at is learning how to do like the targeted history and physical taking. Like if somebody shows up with a cut on their left index finger, you're not asking them if they have abdominal pain, loose stools, bleeding in their poop or whatever. Um, and you would never say poop because we're all professionals. But anyway, so, so when you're having a conversation with a young person who has an eating disorder, you're not just talking about having doing a targeted history and physical exam. It's a really sensitive oh, yeah. topic. You There's trigger words, right? There's things you can and can't say. So can you, can you talk about that? Talk about, you know, maybe being 30 years younger and having your first conversation with someone who has an eating disorder and being the age that you are now fully experienced and, and what you wish you had been taught about those interactions? I think the most important thing with all patient interactions is really empathy. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, and I'm not sure you can teach it. It's, it's experiencing it. And some people are natural at these sort of things. I thought you were a natural when you started on the wards and, and you were very, very good at understanding what was important to the patient and talking to the patient about their family, their dog, mm -hmm. what's happened. You know, a lot of the questions around psychological disorders revolve around really getting trust and, and the patient learning to, to uh, believe in you that you really care. You know, and all of medicine is that way. And I think that the hardest part to teach is not, you know, uh, you know, how, where's the pain? Does the pain radiate? How would you rate the pain on a scale of one to 10? You know, are there any other associated symptoms? How long has the pain been present? These things you tease into the conversation. We learn them rote because we don't want to forget, right? right? But at and the we also same... want to get a good grade. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, so we learn them road so we don't forget and we take a good a good history. But the most the best doctors and the best students integrate those questions in a way that makes the patient feel like you care mm -hmm. and that you really want to know what's going on. It, you have to be able to read the room and mm. never is that more important than when you're meeting up with a, a patient in a sensitive psychological mm -hmm. situation or 
or even a little kid who you're trying to break through so that you can make this a comfortable exam for the kid. Mm -hmm. You know, some kids, when you walk in, they're clearly reticent. They are pulled back. They are quiet. They're reserved. And I am a goofy person. So when I run, walk into those rooms, I have to be super careful not to be overly ebullient and, you know, hopping all over the room. And, right. and I have mm -hmm. to be able to understand this is a kid that requires me to sit down, to be way away from him in the corner, to slowly move my way forward so that well, you should try that out I, sometime. <laughs> I understand so that I understand him, that he understands me before we move through. And we can we can sneak questions mm -hmm. in as we're doing them. And you get better at this because you'll remember what you didn't ask when you don't have it in a rope pattern, but you just work your way through it. So, yeah. So it's almost like it's a um, crawl, walk, run thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, crawl, like learn everything, know what you are supposed to ask, and then, you know, learn how to fine tune it in certain scenarios. And I make wanna... sure they know and you care. Yeah. It's yeah. the most That's important. That's true. That's not care. a teachable thing. You've got to go in, like, knowing that these people are scared, they're sick. Sometimes they're just grumpy because they're really scared and they're in pain. You know, adults, you know, the first thing they do to mask fear and pain is get mad. Mm. You know? And, like, so, so you got to remember where they're coming from every time you come in. Right. You know? yeah. So, um... Josh, I want to ask you, do you, when you are going into these, you know, concocted scenarios, what is going through your head? Is you, Are you like, damn, I got to get this done. Are you like, Ooh, what am I going to learn from this interaction? Are you like, how am I going to bring some light to this patient? What is actually going through your head at those moments? Well, when it comes to the standardized patients, I feel a little bit conflicted because, <laughs> you know, my degree is in chemistry, not in acting. And so it's really hard for me to go in and do that improv, yeah. knowing that this is a med student um, who I'm interviewing, who's like, you know, 25 years old, and he's pretending to be like a 78 year old man with chest pain. <laughs> like, that's just not quite my forte. Right. Um, And so that is kind of what I want to get out of that is making sure that I just remember the steps and things like that. When it comes to seeing the actual patients, it's more of, okay, now that I know these steps and I know that I can apply them, now it's more of trying to learn how to sort of tease out information mm -hmm. and build rapport and things like that, that I'm not really going to be able to do when I know that this isn't a patient who has sort of a full story and just has like a little script. Mm -hmm. Like one specific thing that I'm having come to mind is like when you want to talk about family history with someone, you know, when you do it with a concocted patient, they're like, you know, my mother has this, my father has this, you know, I have a sibling. Um, when you speak to real patients, it's very much not the case. There's mm -hmm. complicated family dynamics. Right. There yeah. are people who, you know, don't know their parents, don't know their medical histories. Mm -hmm. Things get really complicated. Mm -hmm. And when you are physically talking to patients on the wards, a lot of that step-by-step -step criteria really goes out the window and you have to figure out how to do that improv, but in a different way this time to figure out how to get that information without coming across as insensitive mm -hmm. or coming across like you're just there to sort of, get you know, get the information and not actually, you know, care about how they feel. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And so Maisie, um, you, you don't currently interview med students pretending to be 78-year-old. No, we interview with uh, people who are actors, Broadway yeah. actors. And oh, they, Broadway actors? Yeah, so they're like people Stop. that are trying to break into Broadway that are basically like interviewing 
they're like using this. Wait, do they like experience. break into song in the middle of your? No, but I did have a standardized patient the other day. This was the actually the most uncomfortable I've ever been with. A standardized patient is <laughs> horrible. It was like the chaplains. We had like a chaplain's encounter. So they like were trying to teach us about how the chaplain service at the hospital works and like what sorts of situations you mm-hmm. would bring in the chaplain service for, like dealing with like complicated spiritual history and like stuff like that. Um, people who are like really struggling with like existential stuff. And so they were like, but we want you to practice taking a spiritual history from a patient. Like we Whoa. think it's really important. And we were like, okay, like totally we'll do it. And we expected it to be like all of the other standardized patient counters, which is like, you know, they're like actors. So they're pretty good at acting. They're like, oh, that like really hurts when you do that. Like, even though it doesn't actually hurt. Um, but they're like, usually like pretty much like, yeah, like, I don't know, like this chest pain been really bothering me, like blah, 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 blah. But it's never like the most believable thing in the mm-hmm. whole world. I walk into this room to do the spiritual history and the standardized patient looks at me and starts bawling. And I was like, what, (laughs) what am I supposed to do in this situation? Like, um, do I like, do I touch you? Do I like, do I leave and tell like the people in charge of the class that I think the standardized patient is having a breakdown? Like, Mm. what do I do? Um, and so she proceeded to do that six more times for my six other classmates um and we were like wow like I have never seen someone we we complimented her on her acting at the end we were like that was really impressive she was like thanks <laughs> whoa yeah it's crazy so what did you do um basically I was like the third one to go so um I had watched other people sort of figure it out before me which was nice but um the I guess like basically they were they wanted us to get to the bottom of like like does this patient have any like religious affiliation that Mm -hmm. we could like bring them someone to support them in their religious faith do they are they like it sort of ties in with I think some of the psychiatric questions like do they need a more thorough psychiatric evaluation um and so basically like we tried to ask a couple of those questions like like how are you doing like how are you coping with this whole thing like it was a a patient who had like recently been paralyzed Mm -hmm. that was like her whole backstory and it was like, she's like, oh, I'm like, I'm really struggling to like reconnect with my faith after this. And it was complicated, mm-hmm. complicated situation. And um, basically, like, I think what they were actually trying to get us to learn from it is like, that's not something that really a med student or most doctors mm-hmm. are equipped to handle. That should be like, that's why we have people like social workers and chaplains and like psychiatrists on the team, you know? So, yeah. but you know what? I think that's a really good point, too. There's two things I want to talk about related to that so first of all what you guys have that we don't have in real life and real practice is the luxury of time right Mm -hmm. so we have probably seven and a half minutes to have an entire patient interaction in the day-to-day right so what I this always happens and this is kind of my mantra like if I walk into an examining room and somebody starts crying the day's done. Like my day is shot. I am two, three hours behind for the rest of the day. And so that's a really hard thing to be able to give that patient what they need in that moment and still not destroy the rest of your day and be unfair to all of the other patients that are waiting. So I've just gotten where I meet, like if somebody's crying when I walk in the room, immediately I sit down. Like that's the first thing I do. And I, in my heart and in my brain, I'm like, ah, but you know, to the patient, I'm like, I got all the time in the world, right? So that's that's something that is hard to learn. Um, Chris, your 
patients are crying all the time, but <laughs> so that doesn't really apply to you. But but how do you approach a scenario like that? And I know that you've had some doozies of patient and family situations where they may be crying. It may be some horrible thing that happened. What do you? What is your go to when you know that somebody's going to need more time or extra empathy? I don't know. There's an answer to that question. Yeah, I think that that's one of those things where, as you said, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that you're now going to be behind, and and your time is it's just part of the deal, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that um, I think that every patient just needs to know that you're there when they when it's going to be a bad situation, that you're going to sit down, that you don't care about what's going to happen afterwards. They don't but, seem rushed. Or- yeah, <laughs> it's a really that's a it's an important skill that that it's kind of like uh, be happy if you're not happy to fake it and eventually become happy. <laughs> it's it's the same idea. Like you should practice things as medical students that show the patient that you're willing to that you're there for them in that moment. Mm-hmm. So like sitting down. All right. That is a big one. All right. You stand there with your arms crossed or a pen in your hand. Like that is not sending a message to a patient. And in our current EMR environment, you walk into a hospital room and you have your back to a patient and you're typing at a computer. They don't, that's no sense that you care. Mm -hmm. All right. So I, uh, for, uh, you know, was it thought at the transition between paper charts and electronic medical records and embrace them fully for many of their positive aspects. But as I look back, I've become a little bit of a curmudgeon about it <laughs> because I feel like what's happened is it is it, it was a good idea that has fallen into a, a little bit of a catastrophe. So people don't look at people, all right? They don't have a good conversation because they're constantly clicking away at mm-hmm. a computer. So don't do that. All right. It's one of the first things you want to take away from this conversation or people talking is that's what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's like when we all went out to dinner and I was scolding everyone for having their phones out. <laughs> right? That says to people that whatever is going on with the electronic item is more important than the interaction that's happening there. I have trauma yeah. from that now. Yeah. By yeah. The way. I yeah. sit at tables with people and yeah. like, guys, phone's wet. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. So it's the same idea with the computer. When it's a dad, it's not as big a deal. It's like whatever roll your eyes. When it's <laughs> when it's your when it's your patient, they're here because they're scared, they're in pain, they're worried. All right. That's why they're there. Then you know you're a hundred percent engaged mm-hmm. in this interaction. And even if you aren't, you gotta pretend. All right. And you gotta practice. Mm-hmm. You gotta sit down. You gotta look them in the eye. You gotta make the people in the room comfortable. Cause if you don't, you're not gonna get a good history. You're not gonna you're not going to touch the patient the way you should. Mm-hmm. So that makes me think of an important thing. So obviously I went into medicine when I was, I know, I've known since I was old enough to have a memory that I was going to be a doctor. And so when people ask me, like, why do you do that? I'm like, because I, I mean, this is so corny, but because I genuinely want to help people. I want to spend my days, you know, having a positive impact on as many people as possible. And there's not a lot of careers where you can say you do that, right? Where in the course of a career, I I did a calculation once, and I think it was like, if I worked an average amount, I would interact with like over 100,000 people in the course of my career. And you 
that's a lot of impact you can have in a good or bad way. So, but for you guys who are also so cerebral and so, you know, research oriented, why the MD? Jacob, let's start with you. That's a great question. I feel like I'm back in the interview season. So I knew I was going to be a, I felt like I wanted to be a clinical doctor for a long time. I spent most of high school working at Memorial Sloan Kettering, a cancer oh. hospital in New York. Oh. And that was extremely challenging, right? Yeah. Those patients were really, really sick. But like you were saying, it was a real privilege to be able to show up for them, mm -hmm. even in my capacity as a patient transport person, when you wheel people from MRI to their room. But like to show up for them, maybe tell a joke, talk to them about their pets. They, for them, for what was routine for me was probably the best part of their day. Yeah, right. You know? And that was something really, really inspiring. I'm reminded of, um, not to pull the the, the classic book but paul colonithi <laughs> talks about so if he good. wasn't a doctor he'd probably be a priest right uh, and hmm. the kind of guidance you can give to people and that really intimate relationship you can enter with them and meet people where they where they really need you to show mm. up is something really unique to this profession mm. um so i i thought i was going to do that for a long time and i fell in love with research in college but i noticed that the questions that i really wanted to answer were ones directly related to human health uh, mm. and the MD-PhD was like the best thing ever for that, right? Because right? I could not only be there for my patients, but hopefully guide them to new science and new discoveries, right? In that doc very sacred doctor-patient relationship. Mm. You're in. Accepted. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and as an aside, I don't have to pay for medicine. So. <laughs> you know, it's, let me say, it's the best job ever. Like, it is so fun. I mean, we... We both love geeking out about this kind of thing. <laughs> There's no better feeling ever than when you can make a cool graph or do graph or make a you know cool do, do a cool experiment. It, it is truly awesome stuff. I, I'm so glad that you guys exist because you know, really somebody has to do that. Um, how about you, Jess? Why why MD? And and seriously, like I also want to point out to everybody listening, in case you didn't notice in the intros, but these three are not like our medical school no longer exists. Okay. <laughs> these it's been changing, change names, change name. No. Drexel University is a medical school. <laughs> our, our degrees do not say Drexel. Our degrees say Hahnemann University, which literally is no longer in existence. But, but these guys all go to really, really prestigious uh, institutions that have been around a really long time. And so it is not an easy road. So, so Josh, I hear Yale, I hear MD, PhD, and I feel like tremendous pressure and stress. Um, <laughs> one, why an MD in addition to your PhD? And two, like, how horrible is it for you? <laughs> <laughs> For our listeners, patients and healthcare providers also to learn that the the road to where we're in a room having a conversation with you and sometimes where the bad conversations come from is from a lot of trauma in the process. Like this is not an easy road. And I'm I'm singling you out because of the whole <laughs> Yale thing, Josh. Gotcha. So to answer your first question, my situation is kind of the opposite to Jacob's. I always knew I wanted to do my PhD. I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to do my research. I wanted to figure things out that people didn't know. There's nothing more satisfying than being in that pre-publication step where mm -hmm. you know that you are one of like two people, you and your advisor, to like know this thing that no mm -hmm. one else knows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's so exciting and so rewarding. 
Um, as I sort of went on and sort of, you know, got exposed to different fields of research and stuff like that, I realized that the types of research questions I asked, like Jacob, were more related to human health. And I kind of struggled with the idea of saying, you know, if I'm sitting here at a bench, you know, pipetting up and down, <laughs> like you said, we're all going to be dead before anyone, you know, actually uses <laughs> any of this information. And so I feel like this is kind of like the sort of the cliche YMD PhD, but you really need someone to bridge that divide yeah. from what happens at the, you know, research bench to the patient bedside. Mm-hmm. You need someone who's going to be able to, you know, be current on the research and actually be able to translate that into, you know, patient care. If you're, you know, just a PhD, you know, you're sitting there doing the research, but you don't have that patient connection. And if you're just an MD who's not doing research, you know, you have that patient connection, but you are not necessarily, you know, collaborating with people to go figure out, you know, what are the new things that are, you know, going to be, you know, put into practice and things like that. Um, And so that was kind of the reason why partway through college, I was like, you know what, like, I'm going to screw it. I'm going to add the MD. Right. (laughs) And you know, it's not just add a side of an MD with that. (laughs) Someone who witnessed this entire process, it was not as casual as that. (laughs) Oh, it was not casual. There were many nights on her apartment floor, like head on the floor, questioning (laughs) everything. I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm currently 20 and I'm deciding to like spend the next decade of my life. Like, you know, it's, it's not an easy decision. Um, and then, but then you decided like, I'm going to do it and I'm also going to do it at Yale. So, (laughs) well, (laughs) so the Yale part was a little bit of a happy accident. Um, I think it goes for MD, MD, PhD. I mean, really any sort of like higher education beyond college or I mean, college included admissions are just random like at the end of the day you don't know where you're going to end up mm-hmm. i applied to tons of schools got rejected from some that i felt i was overqualified at and got interviews at some i felt like i was grossly underqualified mm-hmm. at so you really never know what's going to happen um as far as the second question goes with like you know the pressure at yale mm-hmm. and stuff like that it's a big name um <laughs> and that kind of does carry some weight because i know that for the rest of my career, that is going to help open doors and things like that. And so that is sort of a motivator to make sure that I work hard and things like that. But on the day to day, you don't really feel it. Yeah, oh, um, chill med school. Yeah, <laughs> kind of for two reasons. So like one, applications, horrible. Genuinely <laughs> the worst thing I've ever done. I don't think I've ever felt so incompetent (laughs) and so I know that you know when I'm sitting here like nose deep um in you know my flashcards trying to figure out how to study no matter how stressful that is it's like one I work to this point and Mm -hmm. so it's really rewarding to just like be able to keep going through that and also I'm like nothing will ever be as worse as application and i laugh but like it's incredibly true like nothing will ever be as worse as apple or as bad as applications um and also you know kind of like Maisie alluded to yale is notoriously a chill Chill. school um they have like their yale system that the whole thing is kind of designed to like promote flexibility and like you know Obviously, you have to do all the stuff that you need to become a doctor, but we're going to sort of take some of the responsibility away from you formally and give you opportunities to, you know, 
dive deeper into the things that you're interested in, sort of cater your medical education a little bit. And, you know, this is an, you're not going to find this on the website, but you say <laughs> Yale system, like pass now, pass later. Um, like, you know, as long as you get through mm-hmm. it, like you're going to be fine. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. so, wow. I'm surprised to hear that, honestly. And you said something that I think resonates with Maisie so much and with me observing Maisie and Chris. Okay. Pre-med for Maisie was probably the worst four years we have experienced as parents. I think that the it was just hard. And I don't know if it was, there was many factors. There was a pandemic. It was an Ivy League. It was uh, pre-med. It was Maisie, who's like a perfectionist. But Maisie, my observation is that med school, and you're not at a chill med school. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Um, 100% at uh, med school. Uh, Yale and, and Sinai are like, no. Yeah, they're like, chill. they're like known as the. Yeah. All yeah. right. All right. So when we say chill, we mean, we don't mean like. Easy. Like, easy. We oh, no, mean, it's not like, easy. We mean like they give you flexibility <laughs> yeah. in a way that other schools maybe don't. So it's yeah. like not mandatory in person every day. And like you can take your tests online and it's by honor code that you're not cheating. And like all of the classes are pass fail because they expect that you're learning it at a level that's high enough that if you're passing, that's enough. And the data supports that on a lot of um, evaluations of the medical education system. But anyway. So so it seems to me, and I don't know, uh, Jacob, if you would agree with these two, and please tell me, but it seems to me like med school is easier than getting into med school. Yeah. Would you all say that? Med school rocks. I love med school. It's, I, that's yeah, right. right? I agree. I don't think. I think that there's. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we're getting a little off topic, but but the but the but the med off topic. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but the med school thing. I mean, I mean, it's just because you know the whole way it's always this proving ground. But it seems like at some point people just said, "Okay, that's it. You, you, did, you did it. Did it. Yeah. You did it. And then now you can genuinely spend your time learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then honestly residency for me was even better Mm -hmm. so because that was when it was a super collegial environment and for pediatrics and where people were not at each other's throats we had each other's back like the entire thing was you need to know this because you are seriously going to have someone's life in your hands and you all I universally found that my colleagues took that to heart Mm -hmm. and so sometimes it's hard to see that when you're still in the early phases Mm -hmm. of what you're doing Um, but everything you're learning right now becomes I shouldn't say that biochemistry yeah not (laughs) not practical for for your your clinical things but but it may be practical when you're doing your PhD but but um but when you get to your clinical phase or even your preclinical phase in pathophysiology like that stuff is real and you and you use it and and it's important and so and then people depend on you because you know this stuff so so, Jacob, I want to get to you when you said med school rocks, because I we all, I think, agree with that. Um, and there, and I think there's a perception among people who maybe aren't in the field of medicine that med school is like so hard. And I hear this all the time. Like, I would have loved to be a doctor, but I could never get through med school. Yes, you could. You just maybe couldn't get through the process of getting into yeah. med school. That breaks a lot of people. So I want to get to what, uh, what you were about to say, Jacob. But before that, I want to plant a seed in all of your heads about what we're going to close with. Okay. So you can, I know you can multitask in your brains. All right. Are you? <laughs> in this room. So 
We're going to close with uh, your most difficult or most rewarding patient interaction to date. And I know you haven't had many, so I want you to think about so far what your most difficult or most rewarding patient interaction to date was. And we'll obviously go to. Uh, but Jacob, you were saying med school rocks. I think it's the best thing I have done in a long, long time. I really do. On what you were saying, there is an incredibly collaborative space among medical students, especially I think where we are. Before exams, it's really incredible to see our group chats will light up. Everyone sends all of their notes. Yeah. People host review sessions for their friends. Wow. Everyone genuinely wants their friends to, to succeed. succeed. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you're not really like... In pre-med, you really do compete with the people that are next to you. But once you're in medical school, you're all training for the same goal, which is to help other people, mm -hmm. right? And there's a great recognition of that. Um, med school certainly rocks, but it is not easy. Yeah, um, right. Some of the biggest challenges for me were setting firm boundaries between my learning and yeah. my other stuff, yeah. right? Um, because if you allow it, medical school can eat away everything else that's mm -hmm. important to you. And mm -hmm. the moment you start to kind of lose your humanity, then you're not going to be effective for your patients, right? Because you got to show up, you got to be you, you got to bring right. your own flavor. Um, you don't just want to regurgitate the billions of facts you memorize mm -hmm. each day. Um, but medical school for me has been collaborative. It's been supportive. I have done things that if you told me I would do three months ago, I would have thought you were lying. Mm -hmm. um, I have grown so much so quickly and I'm incredibly grateful for the place where I am training because it is an environment where I can grow with my friends to be the kind of doctor and person I want to be. Wow. It's great. It really, it, it is, you, you are, I, one, one of my friends told me that the whole point of the first two years of medical school is to convince yourself that you can do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I feel it. That's I feel amazing. It. So, oh my God, that makes me so happy because I think it's, kids and kids in my eyes like you who are experiencing this that are going to grow up to have good conversations. Um, Maisie, I know you sort of feel the same way Jacob does, but I, I almost feel like uh, Mount Sinai has been like a totally different environment for you because Jacob, you were at Brown for mm -hmm. undergrad and are still at Brown. Um, Maisie, what has the transition been like for you from Brown to Mount Sinai? First question. Second question is, and maybe each of you can chime in on this, but when we were in med school, we would meet people who were like, dude, this guy should not be a doctor. <laughs> like somehow he got in, somehow he's working his way through, <laughs> but whew, that is not going to be a good thing. And just as an example, we had a student in our class who was on, on the wards rounding and we had to write notes in the paper charts then. And we would just write our history, what we found on exam, and always sign it medical student or whatever. And this kid in our class wrote in his assessment, patient is a fuck. <laughs> and then was <laughs> the chart. And that story obviously like made it through our entire class. And you know, there was lots of, you know, counseling and what <laughs> happened to him. He's actually practicing. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. He went so. to like anger management or something. But so, so back to you, Maisie. So, your transition from Brown to Sinai and how it's been for you, and then people in your class that you're like, oh. <laughs> Ask me to trash talk right now. No, no, you have to, I'm just saying. Do you do you guys have experiences with people? Where you're like, I don't know how that's gonna go. I have. Well, I think the transition to Sinai was just like that. The biggest difference for me was that I think that the school is very service oriented mm -hmm. in a way that like because Brown is a huge 
institution that has so many goals and so many focuses, like you could pick anything that you wanted to do and do it at Brown. But I think at Sinai, they really pick people who value service Mm. as a part of their career um, in a way that's like, not, not just like service to your patients, but also like service to the community and advocacy for patients and, you know, health equity and justice and healthcare and things that like are now, at least these days, like really becoming very important parts of being a good doctor is being a good advocate, mm-hmm. um, especially for people who are traditionally underserved in the medical field. So um, I think that Sinai is, has always been one of those institutions that's like at the forefront of that. Um, and I think that, that it draws people who value those things more than maybe some of the like cutting edge research or the, right. you know, like the, you know, the most competitive thing. Like, so I don't know, that's just the impression I've gotten in it. And I think that the school is maybe trying to, to pivot a little bit towards more of the cutting edge. Um, but I'm hoping they don't lose all of the other stuff. Um, and then uh, what was the second question? Um, do you interact oh, with people? people. like, ah. There are definitely some. I actually don't think that there's anyone in my class who I'm, I would be like, I don't think you should be any kind of doctor mm-hmm. at all. Like, I think that most of the people have earned their spot. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there are some people where I'm like, I don't think you should be the type of doctor that interacts with the patient. <laughs> I think your patient should be asleep <laughs> before you interact with them. Um, I think maybe you should be the one putting them to sleep. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that there are people that are that are really great with patients and really great with people. And they're not always the people you would expect mm-hmm. either. There's sometimes like the quiet kid who like, I have a really good friend who is in my doctor in class basically and we do the interviews with patients and the first two interviews he did were just horrendous like they were so bad I was like how are you ever going to talk to a person I don't know how you talk to me (laughs) like this is so bizarre and then his third interview was amazing Mm. he was like empathetic and kind and like knew the questions to ask and he was like yeah I like went and did like a practice with a couple of extra patients on the side and like now I feel like I got it. Wow. So, so there's a little bit of, there's some teachability. Yeah, there. definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that, I think it there is some like of that stereotyping. Like I think there are definitely people who are suited to be surgeons and there are definitely people who are suited to be pediatricians and there are definitely people that are suited to be ER physicians, but they're, and that you have to have certain qualities to be good at each of those things. And they're often, they often don't overlap a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like overall, everyone has at least one of those things that I could see them being good at. Wow. All right. So uh, back to my last question, which is uh, an interaction that has stuck with you so far. So I'll go first and <laughs> uh, just to buy you guys a little more time. So I have two. Um, one is really funny. And one was probably the most difficult patient interaction I've ever had in my 20 something years. So the first funny one was, um, I was talking to a 20 something year old patient. I may have shared the story on this podcast before, but it's just gold. Um, who I was trying to convince this. Oh, my, I know this story the, before you even start. I know <laughs> the 19 year old, I was trying to convince to get her guard <laughs> still vaccine. vaccine. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And, you know, she was a little reluctant and her mom was there and they were both a little reluctant. And I was giving my whole spiel about how, well, you, you know, 
even if you're not sexually active now, like you definitely want to get this vaccine before your first sexual experience because HPV is a STD and can lead to cervical cancer. It's totally preventable, blah, blah, blah. And they were still a little, uh, like I just was reading the room, like a lot of hesitation, like more hesitation than usual. I was just trying to like break through that. And I consider myself pretty funny sometimes. And <laughs> so I said to this girl, uh, and I'll never forget her face, like long red hair, like fair skin, freckles. Um, <laughs> I said, listen, unless you're going to a convent, you need to get the vaccine. And like, it felt like somebody sucked all of the air out of that room. And she just like turned like fire engine red. <laughs> and her mom looks at me and she goes, she goes, she is going to be a nun actually. And I was like, oh my God, there's zero ways to walk that back. Yeah. So I guess lesson there is like, don't assume anything because obviously oh, there are man. people out there who are going to be nuns and you just never know who those people are. Um, my hardest patient interaction, ooh, it's hard for me to even talk about it, but it was a couple of years ago, not that long ago. And, you know, when we get our printout of our schedule, it says like the patient and it says like reason for the visit to kind of like prepare us. And I saw a patient's name, been seeing her for a long time. And next to it, just uh, the reason for the visit says just wants to say goodbye. So, you know, she had moved here to be close to family. And I knew she wasn't that happy being here. And I was like, oh, she's moving back to wherever she came from. She was like in her 70s or something. I've been seeing her for a couple of years. So I go into this room and she's sitting there and she had been uh, treated for lung cancer um, for a long time, like going through chemo radiation, kind of like managing it, if you will, but she was doing okay. Um, so I go into the room and I sit with her. I'm like, oh, so-and-so, so you're leaving us. Oh, where are you heading? And she, and she took my hand and she was like, I'm going to die. And I was like, well, we're all going to die. Like what? And she said, um, I stopped all of my treatments and I met with my hospice team and they said that I have three months to live. And so I wanted to make sure that I got to see you face to face before I died. That was like, first of all, who, who has the wherewithal to think about their doctor when they're in the last three months of their, like I, that would not be in my top 30 <laughs> things to do. I would be with my kids, with my husband, with my friends. That was so moving to me. And she said, she said, you've been with me, you know, through this whole journey. She's like, I had to, I had to be with you at the end. And the thing that really, really struck me about that, it was heartbreaking. I cried the rest of that day, but she was so poised and, you know, just had it to get, she had this peace about her. And um, not a lot of patients have that. And, and that really stuck with me. So one, I want to be the kind of doctor that people want to see at the end of their life, like still feel like I was meaningful enough to them to consider me in, in that list of people. And, and two, you know, I want to be that poised mm -hmm. at the end of my life. You know, I want to take that lesson and just be like, I was not flailing, angry, mad. I was like, I was really poised about it. So, you know, hold me to that in many, many years, okay? All right. Who has a, who has a, who has a patient interaction to close with? I'm trying to, to guide you guys, all right? Because I want you guys to know that the really cool part about what you do is that patients are really cool. Like, I mean, they're like, you walk into the room and 
you can really get to know these people. Uh, and it's, you want to hear their stories. You know, I see them on my schedule and I'm excited. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, I get to see, I'm going to make up names, Mrs. Johnson. But I've known Mrs. Johnson for years. She just cuts me up. You know, I leave the room laughing my ass off. You know, I see this other guy and he's not funny at all. But every time I go in, he's learned a new engineering discipline on his own, <laughs> you know, and like that entire discussion is fantastic. <laughs> so the empathy we keep talking about, it's like, it's not just me giving something mm-hmm. like my patients all give me something Aww. back. It's wonderful. Like it's fun. It's like these people become if not your friends, certainly, you know, I don't know how you'd put it, a very fond acquaintances, you know, you get to know these people and it that's really a gift that is hard to get in many other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, hard interactions, oh, I've had lots of hard interactions, you know, they're always very depressing and they're, you know, when they're, they're kids that are dying, it's, it's, it's the worst, you know, they're just nothing, no one should have to bury their kid. And it's, uh, those interactions are, uh, you know, you know me, I talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And those are the times where I'm a loss for words. Mm-hmm. It is not a skill that I have yet to master, even though I try to, to give comfort when I can. I just, yeah, I break down as much as they do. So, so. Um, well, so I anyway. think, uh, I think the day you have mastered the skill of not breaking down when a child dies is the day you should no longer be a pediatrician. That is just not something that should happen. Um, How about you, Jacob? So I would love to close with a hopeful message for the future students out there. So I I want to talk about the last patient I saw in this semester. It was a 15-year-old patient, history of anorexia. It was a traditional follow-up. She was doing extremely well um, in treatment. And it was me, the patient, and her family, her two parents. And I conducted, it was really run-of-the-mill follow-up patient was doing very well, getting ready for you know junior high school, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I conducted a 40-minute appointment. Mm-hmm. I documented it in the EHR. I gave an oral presentation. I practiced empathy and built rapport. I did all of the things. And granted, it was not special, right? It was not really anything medically interesting, but I have learned enough this semester to be able to do that, to, to take a physical, thing. to write it down, to sign a note, mm-hmm. right? And that was super rewarding to me because mm-hmm. it makes me believe that not only can I do it, mm-hmm. but I had an awesome time being there uh, for that patient. Yeah. And I know that I will enjoy it mm-hmm. if my life is anything like that. Um, that is awesome. You know, practicing empathy, having hard conversations, being sensitive. Mm-hmm. It was a really rewarding experience to close out my semester. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, there are times when I walk out of an exam room or patient room and I'm like, damn, I nailed that. Like, <laughs> 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 let me tell you. Oh, it wasn't good, but it, it was, but I did it and I put in practice what yeah. I've been learning. Yeah. I know I know where I can improve, right? Yeah. But I grew enough to be able to do that. And that's pretty awesome. It, that was, awesome. it was good. It was it, it was, was fine. It was not, you know, my attending who's been doing this for a long time would have done it in half the time and with two times the report. Yeah. But it was my interview. Yeah. And I was there for that patient and I did it and I was proud of that. Uh, I love that. So you can do it for the listeners. You can do it too. Yes. 
And you should demand it from your yeah. from your healthcare professional. Like if if a first year med student can do it, those of us doing it day to day should be doing a better job than some of us are doing. Um, how about you, Josh? So this is going to sound a little bit jumbled because I don't know how to quite get this across, but I'm more so thinking um, of sharing about the experience I had in sort of changing the way that I thought about how I saw patients and how at first it was more of solely a learning experience, kind of just like a class that I had to go to. Yeah. And how there were a couple of specific patient encounters that I had that made me realize that in a lot of cases, this is like the worst experience of a patient's life. Mm-hmm. And your learning, although you're a trainee and your learning is important, is here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their needs are up here. And right. it's hard to acknowledge that. And especially in my case, I work in an in, inpatient hospital setting. It's an academic institution. So you constantly hear, oh, like this interesting case. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, look how cool this is. Like, and I feel like even you know, whether you're a medical student, whether you're a resident, whether you've been in attending for 20 years, I think it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that these are it's a connected to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the specific case that comes to mind is one that I had a few weeks back when I was on the hospital service on the infectious disease floor. And I look at the chart and I see that her reason for coming in was that she had a fall in her bathroom after having a hip replacement. I'm like, well, why is she on the infectious disease floor? You know, I'm going in there getting ready to start talking about, you know, her hip pain, her, you know, her surgical history, things like that. And I get in there and she's hooked up to a dozen different medications. And I'm like, well, this is not like anything that I've learned. And what had happened was, is she had come in for this fall she had gotten an IV for just getting some pain medication, getting some fluids, and she had contracted a bacterial infection from this IV. Mm. So she had gotten um, thrombophlebitis. So she had gotten like a clot in um, her arm. She had gotten like widespread bacterial blood infection. Um, it had spread to her heart. And so she was really like, she told me, she's like, I, I think I was dead. Like, I don't remember the last month of my life when they were pumping me full of these antibiotics. Mm -hmm. She had a resistant infection. It was this dreadful experience that I can't even begin to imagine. And so I think this experience of going in and having it be so different than what I was expecting really shook me a little bit and made me realize that, like, I need to stop viewing this as a job or a class where I'm just, you know, making sure that I do my steps and, you Mm -hmm. know, do a good job because the reality is, is these are connected to real people. people. There's people on the other side. Oh my God. Absolutely. And the other thing that story illustrates is that we do bad things to people, you know, we intend to do good things and bad things can happen. Um, and not to imply negligence in any way, but like we sh- can never lose sight of that. Like the, and you can never even express to a patient like this is no big deal. You're just getting an IV. Like you know, everything has the potential to be a big deal. So amazing, great, great story. Thanks, Jeff. I had so much time. Think of something good. Um, I had one, one uh, experience. I was in the ED. Um, and I was actually there for my clinical skills class and they sent me to see a patient in the ED. 
big history from her. Um, she was 68. Um, she had Sjogren's disease. Which um, is what for our listeners? Because lots of people don't know what that um, is. Well, I barely know what it is. It's a rheumatologic disease. Yeah, where people um, have a lot of dry things. Yes. <laughs> um, but she also had rheumatoid arthritis. Um, she had really severe interstitial lung disease. Um, and so that was the reason why they they looked at the list of the patients and they were like, she has really complicated history. She'll have an interesting lung exam because you're learning about the lungs right now. So you should go do this, this patient. And they checked with her and she was like, yeah, send her over. And so basically she just starts telling you this whole story about how, you know, she's lived her whole life in just such like abject poverty. Mm. Um, she's lived in New York city her whole life, like has not really had stable housing, obviously like not having stable housing, living in an urban environment is connected to interstitial lung disease. So I'm sure that her, the severity of her illnesses and her inability to access medical care regularly had to do with how debilitated she was as a 68 year old. And I think it just really opened my eyes to the fact that there's no such thing as a doctor staying in their lane anymore. Um, I think that it's that social medicine is medicine, like medicine is a social thing. And it's not just you, tr- you give someone the steroids they need for their, for their rheumatoid arthritis and send them out the door. If they're never going to come back ever again to get an injection, they're going to live on the street and not be able to breathe and like drown in their own secretions mm-hmm. somewhere on a street corner. Like mm-hmm. what good did you do in that situation? So I think it really opened me up to the idea of the fact that the doctor needs to be an advocate for greater systemic change than just you buckling down and being a part of the system that's broken. Um, and the fact that, you know, she was 68 years old and the only place she could come to get treatment was the emergency room was a huge problem. Mm -hmm. So, um, it made me think a lot about how to work in a system that made her probably made her sick and also work within that system to make it better. Wow. I don't think we could close on a better (laughs) uh, sentence at all. Thank you so much, Uh, Maisie. I will say this out loud and for all, you know, 14 listeners of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to send it to everyone. All of our friends are listening to this. I am so, so proud of you. (laughs) I am so, so proud of you. Thank you. Um, Josh and Jacob, thank you so much. I know you took precious time of your uh, holiday break, but I'm <laughs> so grateful that you guys shared your we'll story. We'll get Sam on here next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we're going to call you guys the Brain Trust, and we're keep bringing you back for updates. Chris, thank you. I know how much you love participating in my podcast, and the only reason you did this is because you were absolutely bullied into it. Thank you. For all of our listeners, you have been listening to a super special episode of Tell Me More, Better Conversations in Healthcare. I'm talking to future doctors today about how to build not just better conversations, but better healthcare. It is all connected. I am so grateful to each and every one of you for listening. If you have had a terrible conversation with a medical provider or a great one, I want to hear from you. Please email me, christine at christinemeyermd.com. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer, MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare.